Welcome to another episode of the Green Minds podcast. My name is Claudia and today's episode is co-hosted by Annabella Rodriguez, an intern at Longevity Partners and also an MSc Climate Change Management and Finance student. We are excited to welcome Louis Ellison from Longevity Partners here today. Louis joined Longevity's board as a senior advisor in 2019 and was appointed as Longevity's Partners Global Chief Commercial Officer in 2021. Louis has the development of tailored programs for Longevity's Partners to achieve their current and future ESG and climate goals. As a member of Longevity's executive team, Louis also advises the board on strategy and governance and was previously group head of sustainability at Hammerson PLC, one of the UK's leading property development and investment companies. Welcome to the Green Minds podcast, Louis. Thank you very much. Great to be invited. And it's also exciting to welcome Annabella. It's the first time we have an external co-host, which is exciting. So also welcome, Annabella. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Um, so, Luis, um, could you please, uh, for, the, for the beginning, could you please briefly tell us about your journey? Why did you decide to dedicate your career to sustainability within the real estate sector? How, how did this come about? Oh, interesting question. Um, I started work on sustainability, I suppose, generally back in probably the early 2000s. I was an academic um, and I was doing research and I was interested in um, really understanding how different significant things impacted on the real estate markets. So I was a, I'm a child surveyor by background, so I'd studied real estate and I've always I spent my whole life in real estate. But understanding how the real estate markets respond to different things has is, is, is long been an interest of mine. Um, so I started to, as, as awareness of climate change was rising, and I started to, to, to start doing some research around what that might look like. Um, for the real estate sector. So, um, and in particular, looking at how it was likely to affect in calculations of investment worth was the original work that we did and research that I did around sustainability. So I started doing that and then um, and then uh, eventually I um, we published quite a bit of sort of quite a big project on that. Um, and uh, eventually I moved to run the research program at a, an organization called Investment Property Forum, um, uh, which was specifically a re an investment research program as opposed to a sustainability one. But we published more work on that. And it it, it was the, 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 the real kind of shift in terms of climate change that was most interesting to me. So beginning to understand how property companies could make a difference. Um, and uh, so I moved from there when an opportunity came up at a company called Quintain. Um, and I sort of moved there as my first head of sustainability role and started working with them on trying to understand and, and help them sort of incorporate sustainability within their um, development programs. They were doing a lot of development in Greenwich at the time and in Wembley um, and other places as well and running it across their portfolios. So it just grew from there, really. So, um, yeah, I moved there in 2000, probably 2010, something like that. Um, no. Yeah, probably 2010. So and I've just stayed with it ever since. It's 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 and it's grown. Obviously, I've spent over the last kind of three or four years, it's grown exponentially. Um, so I spent the first part of my career kind of basically being ignored. Um, and uh, <laughs> more recently, years, people are now paying attention. Now they want to hear from me. It, it seems that your the, the scope of your work has changed quite a bit in conjunction with how the sector has changed. But we would love to hear more about Longevity Partners. What services does the firm provide and how have these services changed over time to reflect the challenges that the sector has faced when implementing sustainability practices? So it's interesting. So as a kind of like leading from the previous question about my kind of my career, the big shift for me in moving from where I was before at Hammerson to um, coming to longevity was the switch from being client side to consultancy side um, and that's a very different role for me um, uh, but it's interesting and the opportunity was to be able to work with so many different clients because having seen all of the challenges around delivering sustainability programs across a number of commercial assets in different countries and different places and dealing with asset managers and investors and JV partners and all of the different stakeholders trying to make sure that you're doing the right thing with the assets and for the business in the long term and balancing those things for one business and doing you know doing that and being that that that's kind of great and that's interesting but being able to make that change and support multiple businesses in doing that was was interesting so then coming into um, Longevity Partners enables me to kind of access that bigger, bigger audience, if you like, um, and sort of make that level of change. But then um, 
you can see and I can see the 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 role that a business like Longevity Partners plays because it is pure play sustainability. Um, it is um, it that's how it kind of gets goes about making that kind of real difference. And I think that's been the shift. So whereas previously a lot of the sustainability work has been has uh, has been sat within departments of other businesses, so the big consultancies will have um, sustainability teams, but it's kind of secondary to the rest of the work that they do. And I think that's been a big shift that's ena uh, enabled a company like Longevity to really kind of say, this is what we do. We don't do anything else. We just do sustainability. Our expertise is in sustainability and real estate. So if that's really where your problems lie, we can help help you solve them. Then you get that shift from. Um, is this just about doing certifications um, and do we just need a badge for our building? Do we just need to, is, is this about, is this about Briam new construction? Is this about Briam in use? Is this about lead ratings? Is this about fit? Well, those kinds of things. Or is this about actually really understanding how our buildings are performing? So regardless of whether it's got a great certificate, actually what is it doing every day in terms of emitting carbon into the atmosphere and how do we make sure that that's getting better? And if we're doing development work, do we, you know, how do we make sure that the impacts of that development in terms of the materials that we're using, the way we're designing the building, how do we make sure that that's done in as efficient a way as possible, starting with the question of whether we need to actually demolish a building or whether we can actually use, reuse what we've already got. So those complex questions are much more where we are now. And those are some of the things that longevity partners can help with. So we have services from setting strategy at corporate level, so helping our clients to understand a little bit more about where they need to get to in terms of a sustainability and climate change journey. What is it that they, and that, that's going to be different from business to business. What is it that your business really does? And you have to make sure your strategy is going to align properly with that. Otherwise, it's just, it, it's not going to be achievable. Um, there's no point in having a strategy that doesn't actually align with the rest of your business strategy because it will, it will become optional and it won't get delivered. Making sure that, um, that, so they're making sure that that aligns and then really thinking about what are the business drivers, what are you doing, where are you doing it and how are you going to actually make that work for you. So we'll do that at corporate level, we'll do that for funds, so we do there, there will be different strategies for different types of funds and different sectors, um, right the way through to providing ongoing services, so, um, so uh, program management services. Um, looking at people's data, so managing the data, the environmental data that comes from the portfolios, working out whether or not it's correct. That's a big, big challenge. We have got much better as an industry in terms of understanding data, um, but we're still a long way short of perfect on it. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done on that. We work closely with our clients on data management. We work with our clients on, um, on we do certifications. So, you know, that's still very much big part of the industry um, and checking to see how your how your assets are performing and we do a lot of um, reporting work we do legislation and policy work um, one of the big shifts obviously over the last few years has been the increase in the amount of legislation regulation that's coming out of um, various different organizations and a lot of it from Europe obviously but um, but other, gov other other governments too so um, we support the clients in terms of being able to understand what that looks like and what that means for them and how they need to incorporate that in their thinking um, we do uh, sustainable finance work, so we help we help clients, and that's something that's come through more recently, helping clients to put together um, green finance frameworks, um, and uh, if they are originating debt, then helping them to to um, look at projects and prospects that are coming through and make sure that they align with the frameworks that they've got put in place. So we do that kind of work. We do climate scenario and climate resilience work. We have a team that's working specifically in climate change. It's actually on the specifics around climate risk. Um, we're um, doing, so we do quite a lot of work with, with uh, clients to look at the risk exposure for their assets and for their portfolios and their businesses more generally. Um, making sure that they can comply with TCFD reporting um, and just make, helping them to understand where their exposure is. We have a big building optimization team, so we will work with clients to make sure that they are um, able to identify what needs to be done with different assets and then support them in implementing those measures. So pretty much anything you want to do with an asset or with a business, really real estate business that has a sustainability or climate risk angle to it, we will be able to support you with. Yeah, thank you very much for this overview. You touched upon a lot of things we will ask you about uh, in a bit, but I just want to stay. And also one, one more thing um, that you noted about how it really boomed in the past three or four years that there is this demand. I believe that um, that really reflects like how much um, 
kind of also the time pressure is, is coming because 2030 is, is uh, all of them spoken about. There's 2050 where we need to be net zero and also the built environment. So real estate needs to be net zero. But then there is 2030, which is kind of in less than seven years. And mm -hmm. so people start realizing, OK, yeah, we need to do something. Um, so how do you see the current situation with sustainability in real estate? Obviously, you already mentioned that the demand has grown. But do you think that the real estate sector is on track to be net zero by 2050? And I think there is the goal to be in line with Paris Agreement to be to cut emissions by 50 percent by 2030. So do you think the real estate sector is on track? And what's your experience with this? Um, the real estate sector is a very big arena to be playing in. Um, so there will be assets and there will be businesses that are that have kind of got their act together and and started work on this you know 10 years ago um if not more um and and have made good progress with their assets put sensible things in place and and will have a fighting chance of being there by 2030 and not just doing that through offsetting um offsetting ultimately will be a kind of part of, of the solution of many of those businesses because there's it's just the way asset our assets are we we, we need energy in order to be able to run them um but I said I would say that that that's a relatively small group within the sector as a whole, um, and I think there's going to have to be a lot more work done. Um, and as we progress towards 2030, for the rest of the tail of that sector, of the sector to begin to any get anywhere close to catching up, um, even if you're just looking at those assets that are owned by businesses that are really minded to do this. There are assets that they won't get access to before 2030. There are assets that they simply that the, the land values aren't high enough for them to be able to justify making any sort of investments in them. Assets that you're just not going to be able to get to anything close to 50% reduction in carbon emissions. So there's a there's a it's such a variety. It's such a complex sector. That doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to work towards it, and we have to be kind of working harder and doing more and shifting more. But uh, but yeah, whether or not. There's certainly as a sector as a whole, we're going to be at 50% reduction by 2030. I think that's pretty unlikely. Um, but uh, we, there, you know, the, the extent to which we can make progress and, and, and improvements is really in our that's in our gift, um, and we need to be doing a lot more for it. I think um, as kind of regulation and policy comes through, and there's more coordination internationally around around standards and things, I think that that helps drive businesses forward towards doing it. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a very, very big mountain to climb. Seems that there's a lot of levers that need to be tackled in order to mm -hmm. reduce operational emissions by 2030, which, as Claudia mentioned, is really right around the corner. And we want to talk a little bit more about what role certifications play in this effort. They've been around since the 1990s, starting with Briam and Lead, and now we have Fitwell, we have Gresb, um, and many others. So from your experience, how have you seen these governing bodies evolve and what would the real estate sector look like without these certifications? Um, I think um, they certainly have a role. Anything that can help us to communicate effectively the way in which asset, different assets perform uh, is clearly helpful, just like it is with any other kind of business sector or with, with any other type of product. What tends to be not so helpful um, is the idea that you can kind of slap a badge on a building and 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 it will tell you um, exactly how that building is performing. Because you know we I remember years years ago when the, when we were doing a, quite a lot of work, I was doing quite a lot of work in setting up the uh, methodology. Well, not the methodology, but setting up the way in which we were working on EPCs at the time. Um, and the, the idea that this was going to be just like a rating on a fridge. Buildings aren't fridges. They're really not. They're much more complex than that. So, so I think the certifications have helped a lot. Um, I think if we didn't have, I don't know, it's difficult to say how the, what the market would be like if we didn't have any form of certification for buildings. Um, would it be? I don't know. I honestly, this but pretty much an impossible question to answer. Um, but they certainly have have their have their uses. I think they have improved over the years. They're certainly not by no means. They're certainly by no means perfect. And there was a little bit of a debate about EPCs the other day in the press of the UK about them not being fit for purpose. They aren't really fit for doing what we need to be done. But they are. They have 
been really useful in focusing the attention, particularly of asset managers. It was the thing that got asset managers fastest to, 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 to my desk to ask me questions about the, about their, their buildings was when they realised that they weren't going to be able to continue to let a building unless it had an EPC of a certain level, level that they needed to have the certificate in the first place and then it needs to be of a certain level. So it, it does drive action. Um, so yeah, so, so, so certificates are useful. Um, they're not the end of the journey, though. They are the beginning of it. Um, and I think that's one of the most critical things that people need to bear in mind. It's the starting point. If you if they drive you to actually understand the way your asset performs better, that's a really great thing. And I think we've seen how the market has shifted in in Australia with the neighbours ratings for operational performance in Australia. It's made huge difference. Um, in terms of in that market and the sooner we can get that that kind of rating working properly in the UK and in other markets then that will again it will drive much 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 greater clarity and much better performance um, so yeah they have their role they're not perfect but what is and we also talk about how this is connected to kind of the us who use the buildings probably that's also mm -hmm. a big role but before that i just want to touch upon another kind of kind of element in the puzzle when it comes to sustainability and we talked about how or you you said something very very what i align with is that the certification are the starting point and i want to touch upon the esg because like ESG has come to the forefront of the investment debate and real estate is obviously one of the sectors reporting on ESG. But how does, uh, in your opinion, ESG drive value or drive action in real estate? Is it is it uh, comparable to, let's say, certifications? And how do you see, uh, do you see that any specific component of ESG, of the ESRG, is the most important driver in real estate? And yeah, is it a low-hanging fruit uh, when it comes to ESG? Um. So I suppose with it's it's a different thing from certification, obviously. Um, and whether you're looking at um, environmental, social or governance elements within the ESG framework, um, it does depend on your sector and it also depends on your strategy as a business, what it is that you're doing. Um, traditionally, the environmental element has always been the biggest driver for buildings because of the way in which you know that's where our that's where our material impacts are the amount of energy we use the amount of resources we use to build them that's where the material impacts are in terms of uh, in terms of buildings but the so that tends to be the biggest driver and traditionally has been the biggest driver and that's where the certifications really have sat um and that's where we can as a business you know that the, the majority of what we do for our clients is looking at how we can improve the, the environmental performance of their buildings Having said that, the social impact of buildings um, and the real estate sector generally is also significant. I mean, buildings are around us every day. Um, and we, we, you know, broadly, people who don't necessarily work in the real estate sector, you kind of ignore the buildings. And it's very interesting as as kind of people come in and work within within longevity um, and they come from not from a real estate background. They often come, obviously, from a climate change back, background. Um, they don't necessarily and I've had this through all my life working with different people they don't necessarily have um have, have any kind of real knowledge of buildings before they come and work for a business like us and then they start going and then they see them very differently because we we kind of they're, they're part of our part of the fabric of society we just see them all the time but they are very important so they they provide us with shelter, but they also provide you know all those connections that 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 we have. So there and they also you know where where our business is, you know that's where we're employed. That's 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 there's a huge amount of kind of training and all of the things that go on with society. So and there's a huge amount of investment and that's that's generated by well managed real estate portfolios that then feeds into local local economies and local communities. So they are very much tied with the fabric of society as well as the environment. So. In the, the more direct terms, then the environmental performance tends to be more significant for real estate, but so the, the, the social elements are are important too. Um, and obviously there's a lot of social impact funds out there. Um, so trying to really understand the social impact that can be generated by a well-managed real estate portfolio is gaining in importance and needs to be recognised too. And then the final element of, of, of ESG, the government's, governance element of it, you can't really have an effective um, sustainability or climate risk strategy unless you've got a good, unless your governance framework is set up to enable you to do that from a kind of, at a kind of micro business point of view. 
Um, and from a macro point of view, the governance has to work in terms of expecting transparency within the market and expecting businesses to actually understand what their impacts are and report on those impacts and be very straight and straightforward and honest about what those impacts are and really understand them properly. So this is where a lot of the green, a lot of the sort of um, the backlash has been around greenwashing and, and making claims that aren't necessarily true. You know, the general public has increasingly run out of patience um, with this kind of approach where it is just about marketing. Um, it was something I always thought that I would never work for, go and work for a business where the sustainability function reported into the corporate comms team, because then it's not really about sustainability, is it? it's about comms. Um, so it's it, it's it has to be, the governance has to be right, um, and there has to be proper transparency. Interestingly, there was a, we used to have the um, uh, carbon reduction commitment energy efficiency scheme in the UK, which was a response to European legislation and was much, it was the cause of much frustration, much frustration and tooth, teeth gnashing by various people within the sector, because um, it didn't necessarily achieve very much. But what it did achieve was um, because it required businesses to report on their carbon emissions. Um, it and there was a, there was a board level responsibility. So it was one of the early things that really got people who were sitting around the board who didn't hadn't traditionally taken any interest in what was going on in terms of the carbon emissions or performance of their assets suddenly had to. So that in order for them to take notice of it, they needed the data. So all of a sudden there were teams put in place to actually gather the data and make sure the data was correct. That sort of stuff is powerful. Briefly touching on that, Louise, we've seen quite a, a quick shift in investors' interest in holding sustainable assets. Um, so I want to ask you a little bit about the subjectivity of the investor's profile. Have you been able to see an, a, a very apparent difference in the subjectivity in the clientele that longevity services? Is there a cohesive concern among investors and owners given the physical aspect of owning real estate? I mean, it's a bit difficult for to, to, to ask a business like ours because inevitably our clients are a little bit self-selecting. So they're going to be, want to be in, they're going to be interested in holding assets that are sustainable because they've come to ask a sustainability consultancy to help them make them more sustainable. So it's a little bit circular. Um, the ones you need to ask are the, are, the, are the property companies who've not done anything about their real estate portfolios. Those are the kind of the ones that are potentially more able to answer those questions. Um, so um, yes, the consultancies who work with businesses who, who just simply won't you know counts it we have had clients well from a business development team perspective we have reached out to clients before who um just say no we're not doing anything on this yet we don't see this as relevant for us um so those clients do exist those those businesses do still exist in the market um and it may be that they just see their holdings as short term so where you've got businesses that simply aren't holding assets for a particularly long period of time. Traditionally, and over the course of my career, I've seen that happen a lot, where businesses have just said, I, I, I'm not holding this asset until 2025, so I don't really care. Now we've got to the point where even if you are going to flip this asset in 2025 or 2026, the market will be different by then, and you need to be able to make sure that you are pro providing an asset into the market that's competitive. So that's been a big shift recently. Um, so yeah, uh, investors they they largely they want to hold assets that that they understand the risk on. Um, it's just a business risk like any other business risk, and they need to understand what those business risks are. Um, it's difficult because climate change is such a complex issue, and it will affect different assets in different ways, and it will change how it pans out. Will depend on what happens globally in terms of climate in terms of, uh, of 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 the physicality of climate change and the policies that are made how quickly they happen there's all sorts of moving parts and you know we um kind of work on climate scenarios that are sort of starting to where we start to kind of work with clients to think about what might your what might the future look like if certain things happen and what might that mean for your business um what does how does that work in terms of the locations and things where you are so so yeah, I we don't we don't spend a huge amount of time with clients who aren't interested in sustainability by definition. So um, I just want to come back to the to the what, we, what you're uh, talking about with ESG because this is like very important that is reflected in also what your client wants. And you mentioned that clients kind of come to you uh, rather than you to them, but I mean that de de definitely depends. But um, when you talked about ESG and the environmental factor as being the most important one. 
do you see uh, only CO2 or like the carbon dioxide being emitted by companies as the only pillar on which environmental factors are measured in real estate or you know because there may might be also different ways to assess a building's efficiency let's say the design or the mechanical system user experience kind of the way it the life cycle of the of the building works so will we stay with the environmental part of the ESG or with like decreasing the carbon footprint of the built environment do you see um carbon dioxide is the most important thing uh, it should focus on or is there anything else that the whole sector should focus on to reduce emissions? Um, carbon dioxide or, or CO2e, carbon dioxide equivalent, is helpful as a kind of currency, as a kind of medium of exchange, because it it enables us to to bring what is very complex back to a kind of common language, if you like. And we know that um, just refrigerants, for example, massive global warming potential um but we need to be we need to be able to bring that that th- those numbers back to a common figure so that we've got one thing that we can report against um so co2 is the co2 is the one that we need to use in order to be able to do that that just makes it much easier to communicate carbon emissions themselves yes they are pretty fundamental in terms of um climate change obviously so bringing the focus back to that and focusing our attention on that I think is for me is kind of where it needs to sit what we have to be able to do though is understand the various different sources from which 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 are kind of creating those emissions Um, and for real estate that comes to a lot of that is around materials use um, and resources so even if you're looking at water, for example, and the amount of water that gets used on construction sites, we we are, you know in, in most of the kind of developed world we're we're very very fortunate in that any tap, pretty much any tap that we can turn on any time, we'll be able to drink the water out of it. It's a massive luxury and it's enormously expensive, um, and we don't ever count the cost of that. And it's enormously expensive in terms of carbon as, as, as long, uh, along with everything else. So starting to really think about actually carbon emissions isn't just about turning on and off the lights, it's about other things as well. And it's also about the materials that we use and how long we make things last for. And with buildings, there is a culture, I think we've begun to get to of where we can just take buildings down. Um, and because we're going to build something that's got more space in it or is going to be more efficient, we we can kind of ignore the fact that it's uh, that that we are, we are creating a huge carbon event by taking that building down, and maybe we actually could have reused that building, repurposed that building. Um, you know, there's a lovely um, example of um, Great Portland Estates, who are very kind of thoughtful business in terms of what they're doing with their with uh, with climate change, and they are they they've made efforts to reuse steel that they're taking out of a building because they they are they do a lot of refurbishment work but they're they're, they're taking a building down but the the materials they're thinking about ways in which they can reuse the materials that they're that that they're taking out of that building and put them elsewhere. That's going to be expensive for them to do. It's not going to you know it's much quicker and easier for the for 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 that to just all be to all be taken down and potentially just recycled, reuse is a better way of actually make, making use of those materials. Um, and ultimately, you know, with the cost of steel and the supply of steel, it may well actually pay them dividends in the end. Um, so, yeah, it's not just about energy, I suppose, is the, um, it's about the, the things that energy is used for. So it's not just in that kind of final element of energy that we see every day. It's about all of the energy that's going into the creation of the buildings that we have and all of the other things that we do with them. So, yeah, I think it does fundamentally come back to government. And also because climate is sort of it, it links through to the um, to the social impact as well. And I remember talking to um, somebody about this years ago when um, we launched the net positive targets when I was at Hamilton and about it being very much around carbon um, and that everything, even the social comes back to carbon because it's the carbon emissions and the, the, the climate change that, 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 that is created by them that has such a terrible impact on society. That's what's going to be driving population shift. That's what's making the pensions that that particular person I was talking to, um, the pensions that they were managing, that's what means that those pensions aren't going to be able to, they're not going to be you know, the people who are who are using those pensions aren't necessarily going to be able to afford to heat their homes in years to come because of what's happening with climate change. So it does have to come back to that as a common denominator, I think. 
So going back to this, I suppose, non-visible aspect of buildings, which is the embodied carbon and the materials that are used in the construction site, it, it seems that the low-hanging fruit is really to reuse existing buildings and optimize them in any way possible. So how, how does longevity approach sustainable design in the real estate sector? And maybe what is the role of evolving technology? So that would be for alternative forms of concrete or any other different materials that can be used to minimize the embodied carbon during construction. Mm. So um, we do a lot of work with clients in terms of sustainable design. Um, we have a sustainable design team who, who's working with them um, to support them in terms of making sure that the targets that are set at the beginning of a project are the right targets for the project in terms of achieving net zero carbon. Um, and um, and then to make sure that whatever those targets are, can be, are, are sort of continue to be respected um, by a full design team. Building buildings is quite complicated. Um, there are a lot of people involved in it with different agendas, different objectives and different things going on. So you kind of need somebody who's the eyes and ears, the, the sustainability eyes and ears, eyes and ears of the client in the room to make sure that when somebody's making a decision about the, about the structural engineering of a building or, um, you know, the glazing or the facades or whatever it is, that the sustainability elements of that are taken into account and taken into account in a very thoughtful and considered way and the analytics are done properly. So we do quite a lot of work like that with clients to, to and it's challenging because buildings have been, you know, we've been doing this for a long time, not very well, I have to say in many instances, um, but we've been building buildings for a long while. So the temptation to do business as usual um, and use the systems that we're used to is is very strong. Um, but if you push you and particularly if clients are minded to to do that um, and you have to have the client actually properly on board with it and willing to make some sometimes quite painful decisions, um, then um, you can get really good change and you can get differences made. Um, so in terms of kind of feeding that through into into different technologies, unless we do start demanding that materials change, then then they won't. Um, so starting to do things like kind of the Letty targets that were put out, actually setting out targets and embodied embodied carbon targets for buildings to to really push um, uh, the design teams to make but to, to 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 research it, to understand it, and to make better decisions is is, is the thing that's um, that 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 will kind of make a difference. Um, but it's not necessarily easy to do. Um, there are materials that are coming through, and um, you know, low carbon concrete being one of the ones that have been has been around for quite some time. Um, has is often kind of muted as a kind of solution for everything. It's not the solution for everything, but it certainly is a is a help. And the concrete in a building is quite often quite a big chunk of its carbon, but it's embodied carbon emissions, so that certainly helps. But I've had numerous conversations in the past about how we, you know, well we. I did a hilarious conversation with a contractor once about in France about how they couldn't they couldn't possibly use any any low, low carbon concrete because you couldn't get it in Paris or something. It was just crazy conversations as to why this stuff couldn't possibly happen. And when you insist and you say no, you're going you're going to have to. You know everything there is to know about concrete. Sort it out. And when they know you're serious about it, then they they get kind of enthusiastic, and then all of a sudden they completely change their approach. You have to keep asking and pushing, and then stuff happens. But um, but yeah, so there will be innovation. There will be there, there will be stuff around new materials. And I think there was a there was a company that won one of the Earthshot prizes that has been doing some interesting work around um, carbon emissions and concrete, particularly and materials. It's those kinds of things, which which are and and but you need investment in it. You need proper investment in innovation. And as an industry, we're not particularly good at investment in innovation and R and D. Um, we don't we 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 tend to be quite short-term strategic in our thinking, um, and uh, yeah, we have, we have, we don't have a huge amount of of, of R and D investment that goes on. So I think we need to do a lot more of that and be much more supportive in terms of uh, of innovation that comes through and and be kind of really demanding change. There's often a kind of view that timber will be the solution to the to construction to build it, to to embody carbon within buildings. Timber is an important um, material and it certainly has a role to play, um, but it's not the end of the story. It, it can it can do some things. It can't do everything. 
um, there simply isn't enough timber supply to do all of the stuff that we need we, we need buildings to do um but it's uh, so it is an option but it needs to be seen as part of the solution there's a lot of interesting work going on i think within the manufacturing of of construction materials um and some interesting innovation there particularly around steel and the use of um, the steel manufactured in um, from um, foundries and, uh, and through a process that's using renewable ele renewable electricity for one and much lower levels of power, um, so much lower carbon emissions in terms of what they're doing in terms of the manufacture of that steel. So there is innovation going on in the material sector, but it, it, yeah, it's difficult sometimes to get the real estate sector and the development the developers to really recognise that and to, to to demand that those kinds of innovation are adopted within their developments. So yeah, it's about demanding and asking questions and expecting things to be the best. Yeah, I think this kind of applies to a cross-sector, a cross-sectoral approach to climate change, mm -hmm. um, not only climate change, but any change in, in that way. But uh, I want to ask about, we, we touched upon a lot of different things, and I just want to ask about what your perspective is on this um, for the emerging markets. So does Longevity has any long-term strategy for emerging markets and how's the how would the approach and services be different? What's your mm -hmm. take on this? Um, I suppose, well, there's a massive opportunity um, in those markets um, um, and it, but it's, you know, from our, for our investors and our clients, um, being able to access those markets can be quite difficult. Um, so yeah, it's a difficult, it's a difficult question to answer really. They're, 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 they're quite yeah, there's sort of just different issues that are going on in those types of market. Um, so yes, there is a huge amount of uh, of opportunity, but being able to get get to get capital channeled into those markets and funneled into those markets to open up those opportunities is difficult. But also, there's a there's a real. It's, what's really important is not to not to try and do this, not to try and assume, to assume that the same thing, the one size fits all, that the same solutions will fit for those markets that 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 we've been sort of trying to roll out in in the more developed markets in 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 recent years um because actually you probably should be looking at, at, at those markets as areas where even from a power point of view um you're not looking at a grid you're looking at everything being local you they should be able to leapfrog all of the mistakes that you know the, the mistakes that have been made before um um and in terms of things like kind of materials and development they should be able to kind of bring in new materials and do new have, have kind of new systems of uh, of uh, of infrastructure and uh, and development but trying to but making that happen is quite difficult because it's hugely risky um and doing what we've done before doing that kind of business as usual usual approach reduces the risk for businesses so there needs to be some way of leveraging um, investment into those emerging markets so that really um, those opportunities can be developed and capitalized upon. But I don't think it's something that the private sector can necessarily do on its own. That actually leads me to my next question. So we, we've talked about how demand can really drive change in terms of technological innovation and implementation, and also how the clients that Longevity typically works with are those that are actively engaging with the effort towards net zero or towards sustainability in general. But as it relates to regulation, how can the private sector in real estate and real estate consultancy such as longevity help drive policy change to achieve net zero? I think that's a the, an important element of, of of what all of these businesses, including us, do, uh, us need to do, which is advocacy. Um, and it needs to be part of any any business that's got a serious sustainability strategy. It has to be kind of willing to take on a role as an advocate for for climate change and an adv advocate for the global population, if you like. Um, I think that there'll be, there was something, I think in the, in the industry press either today or yesterday um, about the kind of real estate investor, investors kind of being ahead of regulatory change. Um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of kind of political debate about what might happen or might not happen in terms of regulation, but really with a risk the size of, of, of climate change, businesses are just starting to do it. I mean, they have been for a long time and, and the, the most the more sensible businesses are are really kind of um, they, they are they're beginning to, to to really understand what needs to happen. They're just making that change themselves. So they're they're just trying to get risk out of the portfolios. Um, so I think um, there's 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 that kind of the way in which businesses are operating um, will 
will drive change, but then, then being advocates for that change is a really important role for them. Um, and those who have been market leading, being willing, not necessarily to give away commercial secrets or kind of um, advantage, but to just to be able to share the fact that stuff can happen, like the stuff, as I said before, about you know great problems of state, what they've done with steel. There's numerous other businesses that have done interesting things out there. And and in some instances, there were buildings that have, businesses that have done stuff that they wish they hadn't done. That's useful to know as well. Um, and to be able to just talk about that boldly and say this is where we need to go so that role of advocacy I think is really important and that's how you get we will get kind of um, kind of national and international organizations and governments and non-governmental organizations the rest of it to actually move with us and to, to see that this is perfectly possible to do um, and indeed it's not just that it's possible that if we don't just in terms of economics if we don't the downside is so significant it's not really worth thinking about. Um, so there has to be this shift. And I think increasingly businesses are aware that, yes, there may be um, complexity, there may be, you know, expense in terms of doing this in the short term, um, but the benefits in the medium term um, in terms of avoiding the real, real economic costs of climate risk that we are already experiencing, mitigating some of those and stopping them getting much worse, um, the benefits and the dividends will be huge. So yeah, advocacy I think is a really kind of important important role for businesses to play in terms of moving this debate forward. One more question on regulation. Um, just to kind of give a state of play to someone who has been following, let's say, the EU Green Deal or I don't know the IRA, but doesn't really have much insight into the real estate per se. Do you have any specific regulation or some requirements that you would like to point out? And if yes, then we'd like to hear it. But if not, do you maybe have any um, kind of who is the who is the pioneer? Because it's often said that Europe is the, is the pioneer for the regulation per se. But do you do you see this this way also for real estate? And and if so. Uh, what? How does this impact the the developers and also maybe consultancies such as you? Apart from like let's say advocacy, so this bottom up. So how is it from the top down perspective? Um. So if there are regulations that that I would kind of want to happen, I think everybody's very aware that the that that uh, the, the biggest sort of the most significant one, the most important one, would be to have um, an operational performance rating for buildings. That would be a game changer for us as a sector um so that's the always that's the number one and that's perfectly possible there are methodologies out there but we need to have an operational performance rating for buildings um i think um in terms of other uh, areas of regulation that have been helpful the report the regulations around things like sfdr so the reporting regulations, the reporting directives, the sustainable reporting directives that are coming through uh, that don't, aren't just affecting real estate but are, and, and asset owners, but are affecting other owners as well. Um, those are helpful um, in that, um, as I said before, they drive transparency. They make businesses actually understand what their impacts are. Um, and that, by definition, will make them um, just understand those risks better and manage those risks once they see what they are. And as you know, it, it means that you, the businesses just get more efficient at managing those risks because they're managing them correctly. They understand the risks correctly and they manage them properly. So that's just basic business management, isn't it? Um, so, um, so yeah, I think the, the reporting requirements, whilst there is a kind of, you know, you, there's, there's a sort of push against the, the amount of reporting that businesses have to do at the same time, being pushed into making being being very transparent about what you're doing, I think, has a huge amount of value. It's really important. Um, so so that kind of regulation, I think, is 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 pretty critical, and I think will drive quite a lot of change, as I've said. Um, in terms of where is doing this well, I mean, I would say yes. The Europe, the the regu regulations and that are coming out of Europe are are certainly, I I would say, are driving things forward most quickly. Um, and what's interesting is because of the global capital markets, they are those regulations and those expectations um, are influencing businesses in other regions because they they need to be able to raise finance from European based um, funds. 
um, and European-based investors. So it becomes kind of, it, it filters into other markets and things quite quickly. Um, so that's helpful. And and I think it becomes kind of pretty clear that, that you know, they're, they're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination and there's a they're, they're, they will develop over time and there's a constant kind of dialogue and, and feedback and all of these things, but it's moving in the right direction. And there will be unintended consequences. I mean, one of the unintended consequences of some of the uh, of the Ask Late and Article 9 stuff that's come out with SFDR is that it, it kind of completely mitigates against the reuse of buildings in some respects because you, you, you're going to have to have a net zero carbon building which by definition isn't going to be one that's already built. Um, so um, there are some challenges with it um, but they will they will get resolved over time and things will kind of move in the right, in the right direction but that that fundamental issue that you're going to have to be much more transparent about what you're doing is getting better. It as long as 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 alongside that um we have those rules which are coming through around making sure that transparency is robust and what you're saying is actually true and i think businesses have quite quickly begin to begun to realize that they don't want to say stuff that they can't back up the reputational damage is huge when they do that and that's been recent because there's been reputational damage there's there's been sort of reputational things that have happened um kind of within the last 10 years that that just haven't really made a huge amount of difference to businesses in the long run where they've been making claims. It's like all the stuff that happened with the car manufacturers when they had to recall lots of cars and things because they just were the the the, the kind of emissions emissions ratings and things from them simply weren't true. Um, but it doesn't seem to have affected them hugely in terms of um over the longer term. But now I think that's that's really shifted. As I said, I think the the public generally has become very impatient with this stuff. They want it to be correct. They don't want to be misled. And people want to do the right thing. You know, people, we, all of us every day, well, not all of us probably, but the, but the increasing numbers of people every day are trying to make the right decisions. You know, if 10 years ago there had been, when I was sort of kind of, when I was working in this 10 years ago, if I'd seen the sort of adverts that I see now around, um, you know, just general products and, and how the extent to which sustainability and climate change is used to sell products, um, if we'd been doing that, to, if we'd had that 10 years ago and that change had been made 10 years ago, oh my, what a shift how much better we would be now than we are. So we've talked about regulation, we've talked about the operational side of real estate materials, um, all while highlighting that buildings are really an integral part of the fabric of society. We want to bring it down to the individual level, because at the end of the day, it's the tenant and the users of the building who are I suppose, creating the demand for energy and driving up the emissions. So how do you see the interplay between tenants and users of the building with sustainability? And how can we, I suppose, uh, influence a change in behavior and a change in decisions to minimize these emissions? It's tricky, isn't it? Because we're often not particularly in control of what goes on in the buildings, particularly if you work for a business and you are, I mean, when, you know, if you're, Claudia, if you're at university, um, and you're walking around, you have no control over what's going on in terms of even the lights being switched on and off. I'm sure you switch the lights off when you leave a, when you leave a room, but you have no control over the fact that the, the, the heating will be put on in October and switched off again in March. You know, so that's quite hard. The, the things that you, but the things that we can, we can do as individuals, we need to do, and you need to start asking questions. People need to ask questions. And I think that's happened more recently. Um, and, and certainly because it, because climate, change and sustainability more generally is become increasingly an issue in terms of recruitment. Um, you know, people are expecting businesses to behave better and to do better. Um, and when you walk into a building, you want to, 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 people are kind of much, much more minded to say, okay, so how is this building operating? What What is this building doing? And it's partly, some of that is around, around health and well-being the fact that I don't really want to be sitting in a building that's going to give me a headache every day and, and that I don't have a window that I can look out of or whatever it is. Um, but it's also because people are aware that there's a there's a huge, you know, that th there, there is a big impact. So yes, asking questions. If you, even if you have nothing to do with the running of the building, ask the questions. Um, and if you do have anything to do with the running of a building, then making sure that you are doing your absolute utmost to make sure that, that building is run correctly. And again, asking the questions and demanding the change. Uh, and that's where we have been poor, I think, as a sector. You know, we should be the experts on making, uh, we are the experts on buildings as a sector, so we should be much, much better at making sure that they run properly. Um, 
and and by run properly i mean that 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 they are that the systems are shut off and the systems that need to be shut off that the 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 the, the you know the the fans the 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 heating systems the cooling systems that they're all being operated properly that different seasons they are adjusted when somebody kind of goes on holiday for two weeks and leaves something on somebody else knows about it and switches it off basic stuff like that which we are traditionally very bad at doing you know we design buildings we over design buildings we make them complex to operate you know the facilities management of buildings is is a, is a cinderella kind of industry and it's so important in terms of what we do so big shout out to the facilities managers out there you need to be celebrated a little bit more and you need to be but you need to be really really making sure that you're doing absolutely the best you can um to run those buildings properly yeah that's you know the savings that you can make are huge really huge I remember when uh, during lockdown and I was still working at Hammerson and we had um, smart metering on the shopping centres there and just doing 15 minute sort of monitoring of of the of the energy systems um, and all of the different equipment in those buildings and being able to spot on a day, you know, every day this building, these systems should not be on what's going on and asking those questions and getting stuff shut down. That's what makes the difference. If you've got a building that's, that's that nobody's in, the lights should not be on. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And um, that leads me to my last question, because you mentioned that people require that companies do better and that climate change, sustainability and all of this is more and more incorporated into everyday decisions of companies. So um, the cohort is listening to this podcast, but also any anyone else who, who wants to pursue a career in climate change and sustainability, be it in the real estate sector, but also a different sector. Do you have any advice uh, to, to these to these young people uh, or Young or old of any age. <laughs> um, oh, any advice? Gosh, um, I think if you are wherever you're going, make sure that they take this seriously. I suppose would be the number one. Um, there's an awful lot of, as I said, there's a lot of greenwashing about. Um, but look for the look for something that 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 really interests you, um, and where you feel that you can make. A big difference and a big change um and don't be fearful of asking questions um you know there's a there's an awful lot of as i say business as usual um and what can be referred to as the abominable no men who kind of just this is how we've always done it no we can't do this no we can't change the concrete that we're using ask questions and keep pushing for change you know be it's the old kind of like cliche isn't it be the future that you want you know that that, that you want um so yeah there's there, there's there's so much opportunity out there it's absolutely the, the 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 question that's being asked the expectation of us we need to drive things faster so we won't get anywhere any quicker unless people are really demanding that change happens um, and whatever business you go into even if it's a business that doesn't necessarily seem to have um, a, a kind of direct impact in terms of climate risk or climate change it will do somewhere so make sure you're seeking that out and making them change that's amazing advice um, that that brings us to the end of this podcast uh, thank you Louise it's, it's been really filled with a, a lot of knowledge from your side so thank you very much for sharing this with us and our listeners and thanks you're Anna, very welcome Thanks, Annabella, for uh, co-hosting this with me. It was a pleasure having you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And I uh, hope it's useful. Thank you.